Hola amigos, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Vincent Haranam. He's a data scientist, law enforcement consultant, and a writer on social phenomenon and the dating market. Between Tinder and OnlyFans, polyamory and red pill, incels, simps, sugar daddies, and gold diggers, it's difficult to say that romance is alive and well in modern culture. Vincent has written some of the best articles I've ever read and done a huge deep data dive to uncover why the modern dating market is such a mess. Expect to learn why smart women are less likely to get married, why simping is such an unsuccessful dating strategy, how women's modern dating advice is mostly total trash, why Vincent's data uncovered some scary trends around what men and women look for in a partner, how asymmetries in the dating market can create men who are dangerous for public safety, and much more. This is one of my favorite topics that I've learned about this year. It's so fascinating. It's a bit uncomfortable and it's the sort of thing that almost no one is talking about and yet almost everyone has a sense that it's going on. It's kind of like the threat from China. It's just this thing in the background that people are kind of trying to ignore. And I'm really glad that someone like Vincent is going out there and doing deep data dives to actually give us some statistics around this. However, uh, the solutions for how you fix this problem are a little bit more complex. But it's this is one of my favorite episodes from this year. If you enjoy it, share the episode with a friend. Co-opt people into the modern wisdom cult. Because we're a cult now. That's what we do. We get people, we co-opt them into the cult, and then they become members. And we all go off and have orgies on LSD in the middle of California hills. So help me get some more cult members. Just share the episode. Or tag me in a story or do something else or just take some LSD and let me know how you get on. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now please give it up for Vincent Haranam. Vincent Haranam, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me, buddy. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, man. So your writing is some of the favorite stuff that I've read on the internet over the last couple of years. You don't write regularly, but the stuff that you put out is bomb. However, what you do during the day, you're like a like a, a hyper nerd by day, and then you write about social dynamics and trends and dating and culture and stuff. Talk to me about how those two things blend together. Okay, well, one correction there. 
I'm not a hyper nerd. I'm a hyper geek. Okay. <laughs> there's, Sorry. there's a slight difference between the No, no, don't apologize. Don't apologize. It's like this this typology that I've created to separate geeks, dorks, and nerds. What's the difference? We can talk. Okay, so I've I've um I've came I've come to the conclusion that in order to be one of these things, you have to have or don't have to have either intellectualism or functioning utility. So a geek is a person that has is that is intellectual but also has a, a level of functioning utility. So a coder, for example, does something which which actually helps people. But there's some intellectual rigor required there. A nerd has intellectualism but lacks functioning utility. So reading a book on 14th century poetry doesn't really help a lot of people, right? There's no societal benefit to that sort of thing. And a dork has neither. Neither functioning utility nor intellectualism. All right, so that's the matrices that you've put together that uh, explains the, what would yes. you say, the computerly inclined uh, yes. modern the, man. The poetically inclined. Yeah, okay, okay, cool. Yes. Right, so talk to me. What's this marriage between these two worlds? Well, for me, I all the articles that I write, I do in my free time. It's not something that I think about necessarily on a daily basis or I even do for my day job. So what I do is that I... I Maybe I have an interest in an idea or, or something that I want to pursue further. And then I accumulate as much data as I can. And I apply the sort of research skills that I have as a data scientist, uh, a data analyst. And I try to take a complex idea and then simplify it as much as I can. So papers on white privilege, uh, sexual dynamics, or simping. These are all things that I think people find interesting, but there isn't really any empirical rigor behind any of it. And so my job, I think, as as an intellectual per se, or or a person that that does data analysis, is to try to break it down such that people understand it in a cogent way. This gets around the sort of armchair philosophizing excuse mm. that a lot of people have with this, right? They just sit and throw cod psychology, bro science out there. I mean, like this is me down to a T, and yet you have somebody that can come in with some hard data and actually back that up or refute it. Yes, correct. The problem with the culture wars, as I see it, is that nothing is actually empirical. So they'll state that uh, get woke, go broke is a principle by which these companies operate under. But in actuality, when I when I crunch the numbers, it wasn't the case, right? These companies weren't actually losing monies, money if they if they engage in any sort of capitalism or if they pander to the hard left. And I wonder how much of all these concepts that people espouse in the culture wars are true. And how many of them need to be back tested or just tested in general? Yeah, so you're able to stress test these with actual data because they sound go woke, yeah. uh, get, get woke, go broke, or whatever. Sounds, yes. I mean, it rhymes. Like that's powerful. That's, it's it's a meme. That's why it's so popular. It's a it's a damn meme. And if if anything is memeified, it becomes popular. So something like Dogecoin, which has no basic fundamentals, is incredibly popular because it is a meme. It's a dog. It's 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 Doge. Well. Yeah. Okay. So, get what go broke is like Dogecoin, but for culture wars. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, we could say that. Yeah. Okay. Um. But you study the dark web as well, right? You've done investigations yes. into that. Yes. You've you've done a bit of research, my friend. I like it. Yeah. So my uh, my PhD thesis was on the dark web. So I looked at transactional networks on the dark web and tried to identify well, really how they operated, what the structural vulnerabilities were. And then the idea was sort of to, to come up with a, a dossier of strategies that law enforcement uh, organizations could, could actually use to take these, uh, these entities down. Well, it, makes or complete, reduced... it makes complete sense going from dark web to learning about simping. The perfect, just the perfect logical consistency between those two things. Correct. So what did you learn about <laughs> simping then? Well, that it doesn't work. 
that it's it's if if one wants to engage with women and get into a meaningful relationship, simping is not the way forward. Because you're basically you're you're placating, right? You're you're a pliable male that's trying to appeal to females, and you're not actually engaging with them on an emotional level. You're just giving them presents and undue compliments. And these women are essentially using you for your resources. Fundamentally, I don't really blame them, right? If 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 you throw a fastball down the middle of the plate, you're gonna hit it. Are you not? So the same thing applies here, I guess. Okay, what for the people that don't know the term? How would you describe what a simp is? Well, a simp. So the the etymology of the term actually goes back, I think, to the 1920s, where simp was a shortened or condensed version of the term simpleton. Uh, but it was actually it was it was taken by rappers in the 1980s, 1990s, and used in a couple of rap songs. Uh, I forget which was it. I think maybe Tupac or Biggie had a song where they use the term simp. But in in modern parlance, simp is a term that is used to describe a man that is you know romantically hapless, right? He sort of gives presence and praise to women with the expectation of receiving some sort of sexual or emotional gratification, but receives none of it because he's he's pliable, right? He doesn't actually bring anything to the table emotionally or or um, um, really in terms of being a worthwhile partner to have. Yeah, and OnlyFans has basically monetized and weaponized this right yes only fans is the industrialization of simping that's that's basically how i would define it and it's look it's a fantastic business model look if we were to look at it purely from a, from the lens of of a business perspective it is excellent and what it does because it capitalizes on something which is endemic today in, in the sexual marketplace and that's that's emotional that's this emotional connection that young men desire yes and they the asymmetry the fact that most men fear rejection that they struggle with finding a mate means that if they can pay to remove rejection even if they know that the chance of genuine reciprocation is basically zero most men are happy to pay that price absolutely absolutely they're more than happy to pay and i think that probably speaks more about the nature and quality of men today than it does about anything else that you would forego any sort of hardship for an easy win or an easy win in their mind. It's like video games, right? It, it, I'm not knocking anyone that necessarily plays video games, but the notion that the trophy that you'd win in a video game is tantamount or similar to a you know winning a physical trophy in a sports competition are the same is is nonsensical. And the same thing applies here in that you're foregoing rejection for what seems like emotional an emotional connection with a woman that you don't really know. I see this in the personal development world as well. So a lot of people, if you look at LinkedIn profiles and that data analysis of LinkedIn profiles found that strategizing was one of the most used words in all strategizing or strategy, uh, most used words in all of descriptions and yet executing or executor wasn't even in the top 100. Reason for that being that it is significantly easier to strategize than execute because by always strategizing and never executing, you prevent yourself from potential failure by inoculating yourself from success. If I just speak rhetorically, there's no chance that I'm going to fail because in my world, in the world that I create of words, that never actually needs to come up against reality. Mm -hmm. You're completely correct. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, action wins the day, right? As that saying goes. And, you know, everyone has a plan or excuse me, everyone has a dream, but no one has a plan. And it's not only having a plan, it's executing the plan, right? We can talk as much as we want about things we want to do, a, you know, a girl we like to talk to and get into a relationship, a business we would like to start. But if you don't put one foot in front of the other and start marching forward and actually taking the necessary step towards achieving those things, you're never going to achieve it. Why do you think there is a current trend amongst men 
towards this easier route out, whether that be in video games or in dating? It's a good question, and it's a complex question, which means that the answer is probably multivariate in the sense that there's no simple answer, one one variable which explains why it is that men are that are the way they are uh, in this sense. It's it's probably has to do with socialization, uh, how men are socialized uh, today, uh, maybe coddling as well, the sort of parenting um, strategies that uh, that are used to raise young boys and rear them. Um, it, it's it's a good question, but I would say those are probably the two things that I would I would probably point to, that we sort of bred out the warrior aspect, the, uh, the sort of frontiersman notion in men, right? That that notion of going out there and getting after it has been bred out of a lot of men, and we're sort of afraid or hesitant to engage in things which make us uncomfortable. And I think David Goggins actually, who's a, a personal hero of mine, he talks about it in terms of suffering that. Beyond suffering lies greatness, but in order to achieve greatness, you first have to suffer. And people are just terrified of of discomfort and suffering, which you know they're 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 scary things, yes. But if you want to be where you want to be, you're going to have to suffer, right? You're going to have to uh, you know to pay the price. Not only is this happening on an individual level, but you've also got a cultural level of this with regards mm-hmm. to the views around masculinity, men overall, what the definition of a man is. Yes, yes. That's a curious thing, actually. I want to ask you about that specifically, how you would define uh, what what a man is or what it means to be a man. Okay, well, I'm going to uh, go back to our mutual friend, uh, Rob Henderson, because he, <laughs> he recently posted uh, a stat on one of his mm. newsletters. And again, like this is, if, if anyone's playing fucking Rob Henderson bingo at home, <laughs> um, because they should be. Uh, yes. I brought uh, Rory Sutherland on the show, and he, he's one of the smartest behavioral economists on the planet. And he said that uh, he was in awe of Rob Henderson. Um, yes. Where is it? So he said that there was three things that all men needed to do, and it was something like um, always be in control, always show competence, mm-hmm. and something else. I mean, the definitions around masculinity and what it means to be a man, you're trying to encapsulate a felt sense and an embodied sense lexically, which is always going to be a mess, right? Because the words are always going to be slightly imprecise. And because we're looking for generalizations here, people are always going to be able to point out uh, aberrations of the generalization. Um, Mm -hmm. But overall, I I think I agree. I can't find the particular quote, um, but I think I agree. It's to do with a competency, a control of oneself and one's own emotions, um, leadership from the front, taking responsibility. Um, You know, these things, whether you're a man or a woman, a masculine man or a masculine woman, I think that anybody that embodies those traits, you would say, yeah, that's, you know, that's a fairly masculine way to be. Mm -hmm. I like that, and I completely agree with it. So Jack Donovan, who is um, I, I don't really know what you would call him. Maybe you've you've heard of him or, or read some of his books. He um, he's a fascinating figure, I think, because he writes on masculinity and uh, two books in particular that I've read of his: um, uh, The Tribe and The Way of Men. And he states that masculinity is a combination of four things. So we have honor, you have strength, you have courage, and you have mastery. And I, I like those, but in my mind, I have a tripartite model as well. So I would say that it's based around um, courage, which I think he's right. So being afraid of doing something, but then doing it anyway. 
the second, which relates to something you said, is personal responsibility verging on extreme ownership. And extreme ownership is a term that is, is used um, by Jocko Willick. So taking, taking control not only of, of the things within your world and your realm, but branching out and taking care of, of issues that are not necessarily your problem, but things that you must take care of. And the final thing, I believe, is conquest. So having a goal, having an aim, wanting to put a dent in the universe. And then the through line between all of these three concepts is emotional control. So for me, I, the hallmark of masculinity is emotional control. It doesn't matter how you feel when you get up in the morning, there's a job to be done and you have to do it. Right. Uh, you know, young men storming the beaches of Normandy, you know, didn't cry in the corner. They, they went out there and they, they won the war. They defeated the Nazis. But conversely as well, if you were to look at a woman who had high emotional control, who had goals that she was going to go and get after, who was courageous and brave and chasing those things down, <clears throat> that would be, it would certainly be an outlier. It would be the sort of woman that you would expect would be uh, rising up through a, a law firm or starting her own business. You know, that's, if you, if you have boss bitch, like that's what would go next to it. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it, that's also fascinating as well, that we typically apply these characteristics to males more than we do females. And I, I think it's, it has to do a lot with how we're socialized and the sort of me that we consume, in that we, we attribute these characters to strong men as opposed to strong women, which, as you pointed out, it, it, you know, women can and do have these, these qualities, but they're typically at the very end, the very upper echelon of their fields. They dominate their dominance hierarchies, as Jordan Peterson would probably put it. Well, the reason being that disagreeableness, you know, to go down the Jordan Peterson oh, rabbit yeah. hole, disagreeableness and a bunch of other psychological traits will tend people in uh, that are males toward having this type of an approach to life. Yes, yes. So disagreeableness is a fascinating characteristic. So of the big five personality traits, if one wanted to be a success in a specific field or reach the top of their dominance hierarchy, they would have to be low in agreeableness and high in disagreeableness. Because it's a matter of getting getting one's way and not being a pushover, being a, a monster in Jordan Peterson's uh, phraseology. And a lot of that involves, I think, Peterson, he refers to Carl Jung. So he Jung talks about integrating one's shadow. So taking the, the negative or dangerous part of oneself and using it to one's own ends. And disagreeability is, I think, a, a large part of that. Yeah, and I suppose that a lack of disagreeability is precisely what you're seeing with simps. Yes, yes. So to that point of disagreeability, when we talk about economics, one study demonstrated that if someone was, a man in particular, was one standard deviation below uh, the level of agreeableness, they would have, um, they would earn 18% more than a man who was one standard deviation above the baseline agreeableness, which means that disagreeable people make more money than agreeable people. And also potentially get laid more or are more yes. attractive to the opposite sex. However, I would say, and we can get into this, the converse would be untrue for women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. if you have a woman who is increasingly disagreeable, that she is probably going to be less attractive as a mate. Yes, yes, because disagreeableness, I think, is more of a masculine characteristic, at least based on the psychological, the, um, the psychological evidence, the cognitive psychology would indicate that to be the case. And I think on average, on average is, is a term we're probably going to be, be using. Everything's quite a bit on average. Stuff. Everything's on average. Good God. <laughs> but uh, on average, men are more disagreeable and they're typically looking for a woman that is feminine. And if, if a woman, I, I would say, uh, possesses a quality of disagreeableness, it probably makes her more masculine than it does feminine. 
And I think that's what puts a lot of men off to disagreeable boss bitches, as you put it. Yeah. What's a dark gentleman? Ah, so dark gentleman is a term I've coined uh, to reflect an, a man who has both dark triad characteristics in some capacity, but is also benevolent. So he's not your, you know, psycho Chad, you know, uh, narcissist that wants to sleep with women, but he also incorporates the three P's, that is parental investment, protection, and provision. So it's this, it's this what I like to call a unity of contradiction. So combining uh, two things which are in logical contrast, but molding them together such that they work in harmony. Mm, that's mm-hmm. really interesting. So yes. that's because there is a there is a particular degree of attraction that women have toward dark triad traits. Why is that? Yes, yes, those men are sexy, right? It's it's the it's the um, these characteristics make people make these sorts of people seem as though they are important, right? There's that danger that is often attributed to a man that is that is uh, psychopathic or Machiavellian. And with narcissism, it makes perfect sense, right? A guy that dresses well, has, you know, uh, smiles, uh, is very attractive, in other words. So he he fulfills that Chad component. But a man who is fully on the dark triad spectrum doesn't necessarily fulfill the dad perspective, which women are also looking for on a long-term perspective. So if you're actually combining the short-term, which is the dark dark triad aspect of it, and the long-term perspective, which is the, the dad, you know, a triple P perspective, you're getting the perfect guy in a sense. You're getting that unicorn. Because you need an element or most men with elements of dark triad traits are more successful in short-term mating opportunities but make bad-term long to, uh, bad long-term mate prospects. So yes. getting yourself uh, through the door, so to speak, um, with the dark triad traits and then continuing and adding longevity to the relationship with your three Ps, so the Chad and dad, Yes, precisely that. So I was actually having a conversation with Jordan Peterson about this, where he was saying that women want a man that is disagreeable, but also agreeable at the same time, because disagreeability is actually a law of diminishing returns, where, you know, if a man is disagreeable in, in uh, his workplace, right, he, he's probably going to get an ad- advance, as we discussed in terms of economics, they typically make more money. But in a domestic setting, a high level of disagreeability doesn't work very well. So if your wife tells, tells you, hey, baby, go take, take out the trash, and you say, no, I don't want to do so, I'm disagreeable, it's probably not going to be conducive to a, a long and happy marriage. Mm. But it's as with everything, man. You need a balance. Yes. You don't want to be out on the top 10th percentile or bottom 10th percentile of anything ever, really. Like I said, I was sad. I, was sad, um, I tried to justify uh, the number one competitive advantage in the modern world is to be 10% autistic over a Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> the other day. You just want, you just want, it's like, you know, that the Salt Bay guy, you just want yeah, that exactly. much, you want that much autism and just it's, sprig- yeah, 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 precisely. Just a smattering, you know? I think there's, I think there's probably some truth to that because you want <laughs> to have that sort of gung-ho kind of fuck you mentality where you kind of just go off and do your own thing Yep. and kind of just throw caution to the wind, but you kind of have to dial it back. Yep. In a sense, you can't go. You can't. Well, I'm going to use a. It's going to get me canceled if I use it, but uh, it's sort of a tropic, tropic thunder, thunder term. I think the phrase is go, go full retard, as it were. Yep, that's so you, fine. I've used, I've used, I use that. I use that last week on the podcast. I've I don't mind talking about Jordan Peterson. I'm not famous enough to get canceled, so I'm okay. Uh, so you've got a quote here from the article we're talking about: "A man who is too ingratiating is ultimately a man who is too desperate. His inability to tell a woman no is a direct reflection of his over eagerness to please." 
Contrary to popular belief, telling a woman no in specific circumstances is an attractive quality as it signals that a man is not a pilot doormat. Yes, yes. You'd be surprised how sexy saying no is to a woman because you're sort of putting your foot down, you're taking a stand, you're saying, I'm the man in the situation. And a lot of women, not all of them, but you know, again, we use the term on average, are looking for leadership within a relationship. And sometimes that requires saying no and, and taking the bull by the horns and, and really taking the steering wheel. And also and, making decisions, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if, if you're in a relationship and you're constantly stressed and you're worried about life, would it not be better if you had someone who was able to make decisions in a cogent manner and is able to lead, lead you along? It's not to say that women are incapable of making decisions or a man is more capable of making decisions, but it's just, it's just that less, more or less, or less stressful when you have someone there that is clear of thought and clear of mind and is able to make decisions. Yeah, I mean, what would you say to the people that say, why, why is that the man's job? Why can't that be the woman's job? Well, it can be either one of their jobs, right? It, it, it sort of depends on the relationship. I'm not, I, I guess the point I'm trying to get across here is that it's not, different relationships work differently for different people. And so abiding by the stereotypical notion that men should always be the leader in a family, I don't think is true if it doesn't work for you and your partner. So it may work. It may be the case that it works for most people, but some couples might find it easier if the woman makes all the decisions financially, socially, whatever it is. You do need a polarity, though. Having two agreeable always, people or two disagreeable yes, people yes, is a recipe yes, yes. for a fuck up. You always, you always need a a polarity between the two. It's a, it's a good point you've raised here. Is that uh, one one um, sort of guy that was writing on this idea? I forget what, who he is and what the book was, but he said that for a good relationship to work, specifically when it comes to to, to sex, is that you need a ravisher and a person that's ravished, ravished, ravished. <laughs> and the same thing applies here in, in, uh, in, in a relationship, right? You need, uh, you need that, that, um, polarity, right? That unity of contradictions. I'm not sure that I would agree with regards to the sex thing, because what you see in gay circles is that the sexual protagonist and the sexual gatekeeper has had the gatekeeper removed and the gate, <laughs> the gate's wide open. Um, and they seem to have a lot of sex. My buddies that are gay, when they go to yeah. cruising grounds and, and uh, festivals and stuff like that, they, they come back and you know, they've got an abacus to try and keep track of how many people they've had sex with. Sure, but there's a sub-dom dynamic, isn't there? Typically, yes, during, yes. The, during the sexual dynamic. Um, yes. But certainly, I mean, the most interesting thing is, for, for me, especially with courting and mating and, and getting from uh, date to sex, is the fact that women are almost always the sexual gatekeepers, that men are almost always the sexual protagonists. And um, you may have seen Rob tweeted something the other day talking about the percentage of women and the percentage of men that prefer to be asked out on a date versus those that prefer to do the asking. Um, And there is an asymmetry there. There's like a, whatever, a six to 10% variance between the number of men that prefer to be asked out and the number of women that are prepared to do the asking. Yes. Yes. I I completely agree with that. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm happy that Rob is, has posted something about that because I think in my personal you know, uh, uh, experience, that has always been the case, that I'm the one that always has to make the first move in initiating a date or getting a number, whatever it is, right? Because you know, you know, she's nice and she's, a, she's out there in the corner talking to her friends, but I'm going to have to cross the room and ask her for a number. But that's reflective of the dynamic that she holds the keys to the resource that mostly people mm-hmm. are trying to get, mm-hmm. which is sexual yes, access. Yes. But yes. The, the, the dynamic gets reversed, right? That women hold the keys to sex, but men hold the keys to relationships. 
relationships. Correct. Correct. I completely agree with that point. And it, it, it harkens back to this notion or this idea that I've had is whether or not men are more powerful than women based on the fact that women hold the or the gatekeepers to the sexual marketplace, as it were, that men are after sex, right? And there's this uh, economist that has this idea that everything men have done uh, in terms of building is premised on receiving sex from females. So, you know, you jump out of a plane, uh, you know, you build a company, you do it because you want to get laid. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But th I think there's some merit to that because we're all, we're all after reproduction, right? Spreading our seed, uh, reproducing, it, you know, passing on our genes to the next generation. And if that's the case, well, women are in essence powerful because they, they, they are, as you say, the gatekeepers to the sexual marketplace. And mm. they determine who, who gets to pass on their genes and who doesn't. There's an episode of Futurama where uh, sex robots are distributed to everyone on the planet and nothing happens anymore. Everyone just stops working. So yes, that's great show. Yeah, that's that's like this. That's the situation you're talking about. There's another quote that you put in here saying, according to Pew Research, 51% of men between the ages of 18 and 29 are single compared to 32% of women in the same age group. Uh, how the fuck does that work? Because this, the gender split of men and women is around about 50-50. <laughs> Well, it probably works because there's a, there's probably a, um, a small percentage of men or, or a, an outsized proportion of men, not, probably a small percentage of men that are dating a lot of these women and when pro pro probably perceive that they're in a relationship with these men when in actuality he's probably dating a variety of different women. And, you know, tied to that concept of that 51% of men is the notion that the reason why they're single is primarily because they're too afraid to, to ask a woman out. And it goes back to that concept we we're talking about rejection. So, uh, guys using OnlyFans, it sort of takes away the sting of rejection. Yes. What was that? The ineffectiveness of simping lies in its pedestalization of women in the absence of genuine intimacy. While the gentleman holds doors and pays for dinner and engages in the women with the women on an emotional level, the simp inundates a woman with extravagant gifts and superficial praise. The simp engages in romantic bribery, attempting to buy a woman's love. And that's just not going to no, work. No, it doesn't. Because, I look, I... I'm of the belief that women are masters at spotting bullshit. They can see it a mile away, especially when it comes to romantic conquest. And if a man is not genuine in his intentions and his, his courtship of her, she's going to spot that very, very quickly. How would a simp not be genuine? Well, if it's always about giving undue praise and gifts, well, there's, there's something wrong there, right? If, if there isn't any pure emotional interaction, if there isn't any need to engage her beyond simply giving her praise and attention well he's not really going to get through the front door is he uh so there's a there's a underwritten expected reciprocation which isn't being adhered to yes and there's sort of this cat and mouse game that you could probably play with the girl that you're trying to court right i think a push and push and pull uh process is what it's referred to and if if all you're doing is giving attention to a female your attention is worthless it's like getting getting too much of something makes it makes it essentially worthless. So, you know, I, I don't know what your favorite food is, but let's say you love pizza. If you had pizza every single day, it no longer becomes your favorite food because you're eating it on a daily basis and it loses its luster over time. And the same thing applies with attention in this case here, where the value of a man's attention is lost if it's constant. The number of men aged 18 to 30 who report having no sex in the past year has tripled between 2008 and 2018. So this is pre-pandemic. And I imagine it must have gotten an awful lot worse through the pandemic as well. Why do you think this yeah. is happening? 
it was probably higher than 31% of whatever it was when it was re- reported. Because that's not something that, that a lot of men would actually report to people. It's sort of, a, it's, it's stigmatized, right? The male, the male virgin is something which is stigmatized within society. But I think the reason why this is, is, again, it's a complex question, which probably has a multivariate answer. Uh, so it, it could be the case that it's men being pushed out of the sexual marketplace because women are typically looking for a guy at uh, at the you know the ten the ninetieth percentile right the the power few as it were at the end of the power law distribution uh, that could be a potential reason so they're not finding women that are necessarily interested in them because they are let's say average right socioeconomically speaking it could be the case that they've actually dropped out of the sexual marketplace so excessive use of pornography playing video games not putting themselves in a situation in which they can court women and actually engage with them that is probably another reason why. For that's, me, I think that's that's a big two. But go on, go on. That's interesting. So <clears throat> I think, you know, black pill, incel culture, red pill, Kevin Samuels fans, everyone wants to blame the lack of sex or the vast majority of people want to blame the lack of sex on uh, uh, women's standards being too high, or at least for the people who aren't familiar with this corner of the internet, that's a, a big explanation. But the fact that some men have chosen to retreat from dating because there's simply other more fun things to do. You know, it's not just about the black pills that can't and the red pills that won't. It's the MGTOWs that choose not to. Yes, men that go their own way. Absolutely correct. And look, a lot of this comes down to effort. If if you actually want to have a girlfriend and actually have a meaningful relationship with a girl, you're going to have to try. You're going to have to put your, yourself out there and you're going to have to suffer rejection. Rejection, I think, is a is a large part about, um, it, it really is a masculine feature. So dealing with rejection, of course, females as well can deal with rejection. But dealing with rejection and handling it is how you, you build a backbone, right? It's how you develop a thick skin. And the more times you suffer rejection in, uh, you know, when it comes to dating and courtship, the better you are at it. Why do you think we are so terrified of rejection as men? Pain. Suffering. No one likes to feel as though they're inadequate. And <laughs> Jordan Peterson actually, again, go back to, going back to him, he has this uh, fantastic line about um, when a man suffers rejection, when, he's, uh, when a woman says no to him. So he's essentially saying that she doesn't want to reproduce with you and uh, carry on your genetic line. And it's a, it's a fundamental shot to the ego. And nobody wants that. But you know, again, if if you do want to actually achieve that, right, to to spread your um, your genes, as it were, you're going to have to take hits. Do you think that women feel the same pain of rejection, just that they ask less frequently than men, and that they will passively get? They are, uh, how would you say, they're getting passive traffic, uh, and men are having to create active adverts uh, for, yes. to to, to, yes. to use the online marketing vernacular. Well, Yes, good, good, uh, good uh, terms there. Good phraseology. How many girls have actively asked you out? It's in, dude. Over fifteen years of being out and about and nights out, I can remember most of them. I'm talking yes. single digits. Yes, as can I. It's like maybe two. <laughs> it's it's not that much, right? And so women aren't taking the you know the 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 active effort to, to engage with a man and ask him for his number, and so therefore they don't suffer as much rejection. But when they do suffer the rejection. I can imagine that it's pretty damn painful because it's not in your nature, let's say, to actually put yourself out there and initiate the conversation or initiate the engagement. Oh, 
So you've already overcome something. You've already decided to make an increased effort on top of what you think should be done. This is yes. outside my normal operating pr- uh, schedule, and it still hasn't worked. Well, if there's, yes. I, I want to hear the girls that are listening put a comment on YouTube or whatever and and tell us what you think because if let us know what the pain of rejection is like uh, and whether or not <laughs> whether or not you think it's as bad as your male counterparts. Yes, fascinating. I, I would love to see the uh, the comment. Yeah, well, we need you to do a data dive on it. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one, man. I do you not think is there something deeper than that? Is there what would it be evolutionarily? Why would it be the case that a woman saying no is so painful? Is it that there is a limited number of women, and that this is a reminder of your place in the status hierarchy within the tribe of the hundred people that you know, and of those hundred people, maybe four of them are available women that are of the right age for you yes it's a it's probably a mark of inadequacy so being told no that one cannot reproduce is is very painful and evolutionary speaking uh most of we have more female ancestors than we do male ancestors which indicates that a, a small percentage of men in antiquity in ancient times actually reproduced and so this is a good thing and a bad thing in a way. It's it's bad, obviously, because a lot of men are dying without reproducing. But it's probably a good thing in a sense because women are selecting the best possible mates, and so it it sort of it it, it improves our genetic line when all the the top stock males are selected. Verging, are verging, just- terrifyingly close to people <laughs> shout, posting eugenics in the comments below here, Vincent. Which is, dude, I agree with you. I agree with you. The fact that selection pressures from women choosing things which are uh, outward displays of fitness, charisma, all of the reasons. Why is it that you think that the things that you find attractive, you find attractive? Why? For everything. My favorite example of this, right? Um, The preferred body size of women over time has fluctuated. You've gone from bigger women. You know, Marilyn Monroe wasn't a a, a thin, uh, famous actress. Uh, right up to the thigh gap desire of sort of the early 2000s to now kind of the more like fit chick, insta bum, BBL shit that you've got now. However, throughout all of time, the preferred waist to hip ratio of women has remained the same and it's always been around 0.82. Why? Because women that have a higher waist to hip ratio on average are more fertile. The same thing goes for large eyes, flushed lips, uh, rosy cheeks, because those are signs of youth. Youth also equals fertility. With men, the V taper is precisely the same. Preferred body size for men over time has changed, but an increase in width, an increase in jaw size, an increase in brow ridge are all signals of high testosterone. Testosterone equals more status, more resources, more go-getter, probably uh, more disagreeable. I would imagine that men who have higher levels of testosterone are more disagreeable as well. So like... All of the things that we happen to like, even symmetrical faces, it's genetically more difficult to grow a symmetrical face than an unsymmetrical face. And then you have the sexy son hypothesis. If I'm attracted to this man, my children will be attractive. Therefore, our genetic lineage will continue more easily. Um, All of these things, the reason that you're attracted to the things that you're attracted to is mostly because they are signals of fitness. And Mm -hmm. realizing (laughs) realizing that I I had uh, Robert Plowman on the show behavioral uh, geneticist and people get real uncomfortable talking about behavioral genetics because it it reminds them of eugenics in a way that it absolutely shouldn't um and the only person that you should complain about if you are throwing the eugenics term around at a behavioral geneticist is why aren't you dating that 
homeless, four foot four, jobless man on the street that doesn't wash. Like, why aren't you, or the guy, why aren't you dating that girl that you can't bear to look at and is super annoying and super disagreeable? Why? That's, mm-hmm. that's eugenics as well. Yes, yes. Well, uh, that was a fantastic summary of the literature. That was great, Chris. I really like that. Uh, but it, basically what this comes down to is ancient ideas and modern skulls. So a lot of what we do uh, at the level of, of course, there are idiosyncrasies between people. We like what we like for a variety of reasons and maybe social. So there's that notion that we marry people like our parents. But even still, that is a combination of, of um, biological determinism and um, sort of social rearing. But at the same time, the evolutionary uh, lens here is incredibly important that a lot of what we find attractive. So you pointed out uh, youth and fertility when it comes to men and their mate preferences is something which is born out in the in, in evolution. Right. This is these are things which, which we look for um, men in, in looking for women and on for females, the same sort of thing applies with, as you mentioned, the V taper, with men having certain physical characteristics which made them more of a protector and more of a provider. Women are typically going to, in, in antiquity as well as in as today, put their their interest or their their lot behind a man who's capable of taking care of them, and that was especially the case in in um, evolutionary in an evolutionary era, so ancient times, but it's also carried off uh, over today. Mm. What are some of the unique challenges that we've got with modern mate selection? Well, the primary problem, and I do think that it is verging into a very, very, very serious issue, is the imbalance in the sexual marketplace, where there is a presumably a small percentage of men who are uh, receiving the most attention from women, that women want men in the upper echelon, um, socioeconomically speaking, right? They want a man that earns um, top 10% in terms of income, that has a square jawline, that has a six pack, you know, is, is in the top 10 in terms of height as well. And these characteristics, when put together, uh, equate for a very small percentage of men. And if the majority of women are vying for these men and ignoring the rest of them, that creates not only a large number of lonely women, but it creates a lot of sexually frustrated men. And those two things are not, are not necessarily or not even very good if we're looking at um, a prosperous society. Why is that a modern phenomenon? Surely these impulses have been with us throughout time. So the impulse is yes. The one impulse being hypergamy. So a woman dating upwards is something which has been ingrained and constant throughout um, human existence. But I think the three things which have changed, uh, at least in the last 50 years, are one, female achievement. So women are typically earning more than men at a certain age bracket, and they're going to college at a higher rate. So just to give you an example of the statistics. So in the 1960s, there were 1.6 men to every female at a four-year U.S. college. By 2003, there are 1.35 women for every man in a four-year U.S. college. And women are going to college and earning degrees at a higher rate than men. And this also applies to postgraduate degrees, where something like 12% of women have a postgraduate degree relative to 8% of men. And when it comes to the economics as well, the Press Association compiled a lot of data looking at uh, economics, so earnings. And what they found was that women between the ages of 20 and 29 made, on average, 1,111 pounds more than a man in that same age demographic. So that's one point, the one factor being improved uh, female attainment. The second factor is that there's a greater variability among males. 
And this is with regard to economic earnings and such, right? All the characteristics that you would look for in a viable partner, that there is a wider distribution of men um, economically, so making more money, um, attaining more sexual partners. And so this variability is, of course, going to play to that, that top 10% of, of men. And the third thing is, I think this is an important one because it's, it's probably with regard or, or with relation to technology. So an expansion or globalization of, a sex, of the sexual marketplace and the collapse of local, of, um, of local status hierarchies, where things like Instagram, things like Tinder are making it such that there's an international pool of partners with which you can select from that you couldn't have before. So 50 years ago, you know, you'd probably meet someone, uh, a, a romantic um, a, a romantic prospect in a, in a bar, local bar, or at a, a rec center or whatever it is. Certainly my parents met uh, locally, right? They were maybe from different villages or something, but you know, they, they, it, was, it was a local phenomenon. But today, everything is international, everything is globalized. And that all these characteristics together, along with hypergamy, has resulted in this massive imbalance. How is it if there's women out educating and out earning men between the ages of 20 and 29, how is it that there's still a commonly held assumption in the culture about men out earning, uh, out earning women, about women being held back? Do you want the, the uh, sort of dude bro answer? Both. Give me all of them. Both. Well, the dude bro answer is that people are dumb and un uninformed, and they typically go along with memes and messages. That's a joke, by the way. I don't think people are dumb. I think it's a matter of, of just the amount of information that's being presented and how it's being presented. Because if, if members of the media are just presenting that narrative over and over again, it's going to stick, right? It's, it's, we're just playing off heuristics here. Uh, I think that's the main thing. That's the reason why this narrative sticks. This notion of the gender pay gap is sticking around despite the copious amounts of research done about it. The fact that if you actually disaggregate the the um, the data, if you looked at hours worked, if you looked at industry, if you looked at job type, occupation, these sorts of things, you would see that there's a reason why it is that men on average make more than women. Not to mention the fact that women between the ages of of 20 and 29 make more make uh, more money than men men within that age demographic. What happens at age you know 29 is after that is probably motherhood. So it's not even a question of men and women making more or less than the other, it's a question of everyone else making more than mothers. The interesting thing to me, I've been thinking about this for so long, is the presumption amongst common culture and people that put forward this, the, the idea about the gender wage gap is that the inherently masculine frame is the attainable, admirable, preferable one that everybody should be playing on. It's like mm -hmm. the um, values that we've typically associated with men or with masculinity or with men's uh, trajectory through life is the one, the, those are the rules of the game that everybody should be playing by. And now we need to kind of manipulate it so that everyone gets to play that game. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, sort of. Think about the fact that um, there are a lot of women out there who might want to wipe the floor with men and get their postgraduate degree and earn you know a grand and a bit more per year throughout all of their 20s but yeah. can't can't wait to become mothers and don't actually mind about the fact that they get to become mothers and yet the woman that decides to do that is seen through this particular lens as lesser because she's mm -hmm. decided to play the game that isn't the typical masculinity approach yes. well why haven't you only taken your three months maternity leave because you know in i think it's in australia you kind of have like this big block of time 
and you can repurpose it between the man and the woman across both jobs. I don't really know how that works because the two companies mm-hmm. are going to be different. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, why is it that you're not going straight back to work? That, to me, I must imagine for women that really can't wait to be mothers must provide a level of ambient anxiety and maybe even guilt around the fact that they have decided to either be a mother or go back to work when they should feel like they're doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. That probably has to do quite a bit with societal pressure. So, you know, women needing to work or well, not even societal pressure, but just uh, an economic, economic pressure. pressure. Yeah. Yes. So the fact that both adults in the household need to work in order to provide for, for everyone else is a is a clear factor here. But to your point, that that is also an interesting thing where it is assumed that a woman should go off and, and get a job and, and do and, and do all those sorts of things. But what if she doesn't want to? Right. All of this comes down to personal choice. If you want to work and achieve a, a PhD and be a captain of, of industry as a woman, you're free to do so. Do it. But if you decide that at the age of 21 or even at the age of 18, before you even go to a uh, college, that you want to be a mother, you can do that also. I don't see the problem with it. The issue is that people have to understand that there are consequences and, and, um, and benefits to doing certain things. And we all have to live with it. You can't simply do something and then complain about the action or the the results of the action. Rolling the clock forward then, you can only have long-term, realistically, you can only have at one time one man to one woman unless you're in some crazy polygamy retreat somewhere. Um, With that in mind, you would expect women to adjust their dating strategies in order to be able to find themselves a mate. But based on the stats, it doesn't really seem like that's bearing out. No, no, that's correct. And I think this probably comes down to hypergamy as well, is that women won't settle. Well, the average woman probably won't settle. She'll probably go after the type of man that she wants. And if she doesn't get him, she's more than happy to be single. She's more than happy to to work on her career and do what she needs to do, which is, again, perfectly fine. You do what you, you want to do. You do what you need to do. But it obviously becomes an issue when there is a lot of men out there without a partner without a, you know, a person that, um, you know, is there for them. And, you know, societies where young men are without partners are ones that typically become destabilized and crumble within a short period of time, a short span of time. What's an so example one of that? Thing, so I think in antiquity as well, uh, 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 I'm trying to remember the, uh, there's, an, there's an ancient society that had this particular issue, but but certainly, it's the case that when young men uprise and when they don't necessarily have uh, a productive means of actually you know, conforming or toting themselves, they will typically tear a society apart. Mm. I mean, everybody knows the dynamics that you're talking about. Everybody knows the guy friend who is a complete savage and doesn't really care about who he goes home with after he's had a couple of drinks. Right? We, all had that, yes. we all had that buddy at university. Not many of us had that girl buddy at university or far less so right um mm-hmm. yeah it i don't know it strikes me as as a, a particularly sort of unfortunate combination of circumstances another one being that if you have um more lax rules around casual sex before marriage and uh birth control which means that you can have sex without fear of having children that means that women can have sex with high value men who are outside of their typical dating pool and perhaps Mm -hmm. higher value than they would usually have access to, which then skews their goals moving forward about who they want to be in a long-term relationship with. 
What they don't yes. understand is that that man was prepared to give them sex, but not prepared to give them a relationship. Relationship. Yep. Yes, yes. That's an incredibly important point here. Uh, it, it's, it's a matter of knowing what's available and what you can actually attain, being realistic about your romantic prospects. So that high value man that is a top 10% earner that drives a Bugatti was probably never going to entertain a romantic relationship with you. So why try to court him at the outset? Right. What was the benefit there? Maybe it was a, it was a fun night and maybe you do enjoy engaging with him. But you are right when you say that it probably distorts their perception of what then is available. Because if if you do have this experience with this guy and it was a fantastic experience and you head over heels for him, you want to replicate that experience in, in, in the next sort of relationships you have. But if that guy that you're dating doesn't quite reach that standard, you're never going to be happy. But which girl wants to admit to herself that this guy with the nice car and the good abs only wants me to fuck me. No one wants, no, no girl's going to be able to do that. You know, you, not only would you probably not know, but even if you did know, you wouldn't be able to justify it to yourself in any case. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's the same as the guy, the same as the guy that sleeps with the really, really ugly girl. He'll probably justify it to himself as, well, actually, she's not that bad. And it's this, that, and the only thing. No, dude, it's because you've had eight pints and you're in a city that you've never been in before and you're lonely. That's why. Yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, so, lays a lay, right? Yes, correct. Hmm. I don't know, man. I think, um, I think it'd be very difficult for a, a girl to kind of concede that point you know, one of the main reasons would be men give off signals of long-term mating strategies. Very few men, you know, no matter how alpha you are, are going to say, um, hope that you've got your Uber booked for 3.30 a.m. tonight um, type thing as you're, on the, as you're on the way back. Or, hi, mate, can you just wait outside in the cab while, while we get this done and then you can take her home? Most men right. aren't honest and open about their short-term mating intentions, which it's lead, leading women on. Yes. I think that that is true. But at the same time, does, does being open make a man more or less attractive with regard to his intention? So if, if you met a girl right away and you took her out on a first date or maybe, maybe even a second date and you said to her, uh, my intention is to marry you, does that make you more or less attractive if you are that transparent? I mean, what do you think? Maybe. I would say that's probably coming on too strong. That's coming on too strong, right? So that sort of transparency may not necessarily work in that particular situation. Well, the most bizarre thing is that the men who have no intention of being in a long-term relationship with you usually give off signals that they do. <laughs> and the men who do want to be in a long-term relationship with you try to give off signals that they're not. Yes, but, but that's the thing, though, is that it's, it's, a, strange, it's a strange way that um, I suppose that the female mind perceives attractive males and it probably comes back to the point about attention is that you want that which you cannot have, you know, and if you can't have the, the man that is, uh, you know, the upper echelon of men, the high value man, you'll want him even more. Roll the clock Whereas, forward for me then. Like there's going to be a lot of single women in future. What's going to yeah. happen there? Because um, do you think that women can uh, reset their hypergamous nature? No, no, that's, that's an evolutionary fixture that's going to stick around for quite a while. Uh, things are probably going to get far worse than they are better before everything is said and done. What's that mean? But, um, well, it means, I think we're probably going to see a lot more um, violence with, with relation to incels. I think that's probably going to go up as a result of the influx of lonely single men. And, of course, you're going to see quite a bit more depression among single, uh, single women. In fact, I think there's a statistic out there that indicates that women, 
Caucasian females between the ages of 40 and 45 have the highest rates of antidepressant use. And that is probably going to increase as, as time goes on, but probably spread out to other uh, age demographics. 40 and 45? I believe so. So do you think that that's <clears throat> women who have perhaps uh, not dated or dated unsuccessfully and made it to the wall uh, without a partner and are now accepting their sort of childless future? Yes, I, I think so. But there is there is some saving grace. So if I were to added a contradictory statistic here, it's that the only uh, demographic among females where there's been an increase in in um, infertility and in children being born is that same demographic is women between the ages of 40 and 40, 45. I want to say so I want to say that more women had in 2019 had children over the age of 40 than under the age of 20. Correct. Correct. That's exactly correct. I think um, so. Peer Research actually put out a, a study not too long ago, and it twenty. Uh, 2016, it was 80% of women uh, between the ages of 40 and 45 that had a, a child, and that actually increased by 6% as of 2019. That's crazy. So it's slowly, it's, yeah, it's slowly ticking upwards. And that, you know, to be honest, the average age of women having children uh, increasing is probably due to the fact that we're having uh, um, less uh, children out of, well, not quite children out of wedlock, but children um, uh, born to, to teenage parents, let's say, to teenage women. Is that happening? Yes. Yeah. So th it's not the case that children are not being born out of wedlock. That is actually going up and it's, it's quite it's quite a substantial amount. But um, sort of uh, safe sex practices, that sort of thing has been instrumental in reducing the rate of teenage pregnancy. I read in The Moral Animal by Robert Wright about how monogamy is a sexual redistribution strategy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this this really fascinated me, the fact yes. that if you have one man with many women, you allow one particular man to capture most of the market, whereas mm -hmm. if you have one man with one woman, you actually end up um, allowing man number two to get woman number two, whereas previously he would have been looking at woman number 11 because yes. women one to 10 would have been with man number one. And that um, that kind of explains, I think, some of the resentment that you see in the black pill culture and in the incel culture around these chads, these high value men that are able to sleep with many women because they see them as tying up available women's reproduction potential during fertile years when they could have been dating other people. And also, uh, how would you say, kind of uh, bunching up the line, moving the queue tighter and tighter together. Uh, yes in a way which has trickle-down effect that has potentially competed them out of the dating market. Absolutely. So these, these uh, black ball guys will, as the meme goes, they hate Chad and Stacey. And it, it's, it's funny you mention that because I, you are correct. So, and um, the researcher, I forget the name that you mentioned. Robert Wright uh, is the book. Robert Wright, yeah. yes. Entirely correct, I think, in, in that monogamy in, in the, um, the grand scheme of things is, is probably a, a, a newer concept, a newer thing that's come about. It was never the case in antiquity that we engage in monogamy. It was typically polygamous, right? We had harems and such. And I do think that there is an argument to be made about returning to that, specifically when we talk about imbalances in the sexual marketplace with a small percentage of men hogging a large percentage of women. So if we look at Tinder data, for example, uh, it's, you know, most of the men on Tinder, of the profiles they come across, females, they'll swipe right on 60% of them. When it comes to females, they'll only swipe right on 4.5% of them.
So that is a massive imbalance just on Twitter usage. And that that is even compounded by the fact that 78% of individuals that use Tinder are male. And so 22% of people that use Tinder are female, which means of the demographic, of the smallest demographic in, in terms of gender, the vast majority of those, these women are being selected by the vast majority of men. And the opposite is not true for females. Dude, I've just realized the implication of what you're saying, and I've never thought of this before. I think about this shit a lot, right? I've read everything yes. that you've read. I've read a lot of stuff around red pill and black pill. And I've only just realized that one of the potential solutions to this is to go back to a polygamous uh, culture because if women can't get rid of their hypergamous nature, if we can't rise, uh, raise men's uh, level of competition up in order to be able to match the women, one of the solutions to make fewer people overall be single is to have many women with one man at the top and then just leave the men at the bottom to be cast away. That's fucking terrifying. That's terrifying. And it's, it's not what we want to do. That is a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for social upheaval and just societal disintegration. If men are simply cast aside because they're inadequate. Fuck. But that's the yes. case at the moment. That's the case at the moment with it being non-polygamous. Mm -hmm. Non-polygamous, correct. So imagine a society like China where there is a massive gender imbalance based off of the, the uh, one-child policy that they initiated you know, centuries back. And now looking at the, the modern sexual dynamics, what do you think is going to come of that society in 50 to 100 years if, if all of this, if our hypotheses here are correct and this plays its course? Do you think, are you talking about if you have one man with many women? Yes. So the, the, so in essence, so as we just pointed out, it's, it's that, uh, polygamous, that uh, polygamous setup where it's one man with, with many women mm -hmm. and the rest of these men who are incapable of, of attaining a sexual partner are being left in the dust. But the only thing that they have to bind together over is their mutual hatred of Chad and Stacey. Of Chad and Stacey. Yes. Fuck, man. That's, so I never thought of the fact that a potential solution, and I'm going to guess there'll be a utilitarian rationalist out there who would say that this is actually an optimal outcome as long as you can control this underclass of sexless men, yes. um, that you actually end up reducing the number of people overall that are single by doing mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, but you very, very much create a, a bifurcated society. You have the haves and the have-nots, and the Matthew yes. principle comes out with this as well. So, I mean, as an example, I think... Uh, Robert Wright explains, I can't remember, it was in 1994 he wrote this book, man, it's so prescient, it's amazing. And um, But at the time, maybe the richest man was like Warren Buffett or something. It's like a really unsexy example. And he talks about the fact that uh, you could have the richest man in the world that's worth however many billion, and he could fund the lives using money as a proxy for resources, which is one of the fundamental things that women want from a man. Uh, mm -hmm. He would be able to fund like... 10,000 women's lives the same yes. as as one millionaire. Um, yes. And when you think about that, you go, well, okay, obviously women want more than just monetary access. They actually want emotional control, uh, emotional uh, connection. They want to be able to feel like they're part of a working capacity family and so on and so forth. Uh, but when you think about it like that, and if the choice is between being completely single as a woman as you get into your thirties or being one of many with a man who you know can look after you because he's one of these super earners with all of the resources and all of the status, uh, 
I don't know. I don't know how tempting that ends up sounding. <laughs> Incredibly tempting, I would I would assume, because it's it's the prospect of being funded, uh, pretty much winning the lottery ticket when it comes to these these Warren Buffett types, and having to raise children with a man that you're not necessarily attracted with or attracted to or even happy with, that doesn't necessarily provide the sort of life that you want. Well, the third option is it's obviously to con- is to continue uh, leading a solo ranger life, and yes. I think that the from a utilitarian perspective it would like why why isn't everyone in a relationship with elon musk like i should be in a relationship with elon musk based on utilitarian approach well it's because he's building he's busy building rockets i think that's what the issue is he's not he's not he doesn't have the time for that sort of thing but a a terrible joke aside yes your your point is well taken yes um because it's you know what it is i think it's just it's a matter of unfamiliarity so this sort of dynamic that we're describing is not something that people subscribe to normally Right, something which is entirely foreign to us, given the fact that a nu- the nuclear family and monogamy is, given the, the fact that these two things are still ingrained within within the way we do relationships today. So well, while it may not be palatable today, it might be palatable in 10, 20 years' time, 50, potentially. That was the aftershock of the Renaissance, right? The As Rollo Tomasi, founder of the Red Pill, calls it, the one-itis. The belief mm-hmm. that there is one true love, and this was very much pushed through the Renaissance. And then, if you think about popular recent culture, you've got Disney movies like Aladdin that really, really just fundamentally create this. There is someone yes. out there that is perfectly built for you, and you will spend the rest of your life together. Yes. So I, I have a bone to pick with Disney. I have an axe to grind with them because I think the Disneyfication of romantic relationships is incredibly dangerous. So, uh, so are. Are you, uh, your parents still together? Yes. Yes. So our grandparents and our parents are, they typically have lower rates of divorce because the basis of the relationship was not necessarily based on their happiness per se. It was more so getting things done and ensuring that these children were raised in a correct manner, right? And that often meant putting up with the opposite sex, putting up with uh, your partner, despite the fact that they're behaving like a dickhead on that specific day. Today, things I think are different because, again, it's that Disneyfication of romantic relationships where if it's not perfect, if it's not a fairy tale, I don't want it. And so it is subject to divorce. And it, again, goes back to that concept of suffering and hardship and rejection. How good was the relationship to begin with if once you hit a, a rough patch, you immediately give up? I think that you see this as well with the increasing masculinization or the masculine frame that women are being encouraged to take too. You know, uh, don't settle for less, clap back, be a boss bitch. I know that these are all kind of funny Twitter memes, but they permeate, you know, phenomenologically, they're in the back of someone's mind. They're in the back of a girl's mind. The fact that he doesn't deserve you, babe, all of that sort of stuff is averse to working through challenges with a man who is on a par with your sexual marketplace value. Um, yes. And the same thing goes for the guys. It's like plenty more fish in the sea, get over your last girlfriend by getting under the next one. You know, the, the, there are meta memes on both sides of the fence here. Now they're being played in different ways. The men are being reminded to reinforce their masculine traits and the women are being reminded that a protectionist strategy is to adopt masculine traits. Mm-hmm. But again, what we're seeing, I, I, I need to... I might. I need to ring Rob for like three hours and talk it through. But there is a masculine frame, a masculine preference, which is being 
it's like when you varnish a table and it's just it's just like a smattering across everything or it's like the direction that the wind is pushing whether that be with how you're supposed to spend your relationships how you're supposed to um think about education how you're supposed to think about your career all of these things they really do seem to be pushing in that direction but with the women's side of things um yeah they're being encouraged to not accept a not a subpar mate, but a uh, difficult situation. Guy. Yeah, difficult situation yeah. with a uh, equitable mate. Yes, yes, it's it, it's a problem, and it, obviously you're making the point here about ideas and memes, and it's it's not just a meme; it's it's a mode of thinking that is being inculcated by young women and also young men to an extent, and it's incredibly problematic that this this notion that one must not necessarily settle. It, it's fine, right? I don't think you should ever settle per se, but it's it's more so that you should be very realistic about what it is that's attainable and what it is that's out there. And life is unfair, and you're not always going to get what you want, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Well, and if more people, sorry, well, I was going to say that if more people were to come to that realization that they would just have to get on with things and just accept them as as to how they are, well, it'd be a lot simpler, wouldn't it? What do you mean by that? Well, if if one if if you know the average female out there who is after you know Giga Alpha Chad realizes that she can't actually attain Giga Alpha Chad, and she may in fact have to go with um, you know Storm and Norman ex- as an example, or Joey Bag of Donuts, she'd have a she'd have a romantic partner. But it's that notion of settling, being the boss bitch, which comes into conflict with it. That what she's told and what she may necessarily need are two different things. So, such a tough pill to swallow, man. And increasingly, as I've spent more time with this, I do feel for women as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's easy, I think, in this situation when we're talking about stuff like this, to men are the obvious victims of this because they're not the ones that are choosing to not be in relationships. They're often, on average, they're the ones that are being overlooked uh, for being yes. in relationships. Uh, but the experience isn't that much better for women either. Women didn't choose to have a hypergamous nature. They didn't mm-hmm. choose to fundamentally find attraction in men who are across and above their dominance hierarchy. And as you put it in one of your articles, it's very difficult to date up and across a dominance hierarchy if you stand atop your own. And as women begin to rise up through theirs, as they become better educated, they become richer, they have more status, and you now have a culture which is encouraging women to value that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about another set of stats you had was there's a, a 50% increase in the use of erectile dysfunction medication amongst yes. men who are in a relationship with women who out-earn who them. make more money. Yes, correct. So you correct. have all of these dynamics that are bearing out. That's, that's got sweet fuck all to do with culture. That is exclusively physiological, Right. What is what what is the the function that's occurring that causes a man who's in a relationship where his wife out earns him to need to use erectile dysfunction medication? You have significantly higher uh, rates of divorce. Amongst- I thought about that, and I, I the the answer again is I think is a difficult one because it, it could be one of two things. So the first thing could be that he probably feels inadequate. He doesn't feel as though he's leading the relationship, and so he's sort of put in a position where because he's not the primary breadwinner. He is sort of a, uh, you know, there's a reduction in serotonin, for example, and he, he just feels uh, inadequate. And so that translates to his ability to actually perform in the bedroom. But it could also be a reverse causality thing where his, his inability to actually make money in the first place actually contributes That's the selection to his, effect. Yes, yes. So it could be the case that he was actually unable to make money for a variety of different reasons. Maybe he was just completely agreeable. 
And so, you know, that probably relates to his inability to actually get it up. So he wasn't actually, you know, um, it, it wasn't the case that he was predisposed to get it up in the, in the first place because of a variety of characteristics inherent to him. Mm. Wasn't there a stat around, is it 30% of women said that they wouldn't get into a relationship with a man that doesn't have a job? Or mm-hmm. was it the 30% that said that it was a man that wouldn't earn more than them? I can't remember. Uh, so there, there are a number of statistics here. So these studies go back to, the, to 1939, where they found that women were twice as likely as men to want a partner that made more than them or made a significant amount of money. And this sort of finding has been replicated in studies in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I think the study that you're referring to specifically was that the, I think it may have been, was it Pew? Pew put out a study that said that 78% of women would not date a partner or not get with a a prospective mate that did not make more than they did. And only 48% of men shared that uh, view. Fuck, man. And you now have... No, sorry, go ahead. You have an ever increasing group of high-performing women competing for an ever-decreasing group of ultra-high-performing men. Mm-hmm. And the choice is, the, the analogy that I always use is, it's the same as being the tall girlfriend. Now, if you're a six-foot-one without heels on woman, you're looking at professional athletes because on average, women want to date a man that is about 21 centimeters taller than her. Yes. That's another uh, yes, Vincent Haranam uh, statistic poll there. Um, <laughs> Interestingly, men prefer to date a woman that's, I think, 16 centimeters or 12 centimeters shorter than him. So even yes. in that, and this is, this is such a, a perfect example, right? Women want a, a, to date a man on average that's 21 centimeters taller. Men on average want to date a woman that is 16 centimeters shorter. In that, we have a disparity. We have the mm-hmm. preference of a man and the preference of a woman, both moving in opposite directions, but not marrying up. Yes. Yeah. So the, 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 the missing point here is not just the preference of a woman, because from, from the conversation we're having, we're discussing female mate preferences. But what is lost here are male mate preferences, what they're looking for in a prospective mate. So we talk about women. I haven't even spoken you know, about that. Yeah, men don't, men don't matter. That. <laughs> but, but even looking at what men desire in a partner, there, you know, there's that notion that there's a new 18-year-old every day. And so these women that are achieving uh, quite a bit, uh, you know, economically speaking, educationally speaking, are going to be on average much older than women just entering the bloom of their life. So they're competing against women who are on average more attracted or more attractive to males. Because if it, if it is the case that men are attracted to youth and fertility, you're down. You're behind the eighth ball if, if you're 35 with a PhD competing against an 18 year old an 18 year old that is just doesn't have, hasn't had that much life experience but is quite attractive to a to works at starbucks but she's fertile as fuck exactly exactly it's 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 a tough sell it's it's a horribly unfair dynamic the asymmetries go all the way down man i mean you said so here's another thing that some of the girls that are listening may have realized if being smart and rich and high status is uh, negatively correlated with men being attracted to you and with success in relationships, that may lead some women to signal that they are less smart and less educated and less wealthy than they are. And I think that you found a study that showed women under-reporting their education level in certain circumstances when around men. 
This is correct. So this is referencing, I believe, a a Harvard um, uh, Business School study. So looking at um, declarations of of um, you know personal success, so wanting to become something later on down the line, and when it was the case that uh, women could confidentially report their their ambitions, they would do so honestly. But when it was known that people would actually realize or recognize them, uh, they, they would actually tamp down their ambitions so as to not make it seem as though they were ambitious. And it, it logically links the fact that um, they'd be less attractive to a man because she was a boss bitch career, career woman. It's a Jordan Peterson-ism to say, is it for every standard deviation that a woman... Uh, goes above the mm-hmm. uh, normal IQ. Yes. Uh, point that she's thirty percent less likely to get married. I can state the exact statistics. So uh, it was a study conducted by four universities here in the UK, and it was found that for every sixteen point increase for a man in IQ, his prospect of marriage increases by thirty five percent. But for every sixteen point increase in a woman's IQ, her prospect of marriage decreases by forty percent. What do we do about that? What do you do about that statistic? I I don't know that you do anything about it. Again, it's all of what we're discussing here are just inherent facts of the human condition about dating, sexual dynamics, and all of this is premised on on evolutionary precepts. And there, I don't think there's anything you can do about it. I don't think there's anything you can do about it. As sad as that sounds, unless you want to settle, because it's almost like you'd have to. If you're a female, and I do feel for young girls, particularly if I have a daughter. Um, in the future, I, I definitely would feel for her because that you have ambitions and you want to be something and you want to be someone and you want to achieve all these things and make quite a bit of money. Good for you. You should aim for that sort of thing. But it comes with the consequence of knowing that men that you are looking to get with in a long-term relationship aren't interested in those things. And you're not going to be as attractive as, again, the 18-year-old. It's a difficult thing that competence in many domains is not something which is seen as attractive by the sex that you're trying to attract as a woman and also mm-hmm. actually can be detrimental. Mm-hmm. That you being competent, working hard to get a job, to grow a career, to get status, to earn money, to become educated, all of these things are actually making it more difficult for you to do it. And on top of that, they use up the single most important resource and the most attractive quality you have, which is time and your youth. Yes. You yes. spend your 20s getting educated, building up your career and earning money to find out that men don't care about your education level, your career or your wealth. And now you're so you're older than some women who you're now trying to compete with. That's it's not kicking the balls. Uh, it's a kick in the something else about it's a punch in the tits. It's, it's a punch awful. in the tit. It's a punch in the tit. You're correct. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, fuck man, this, this, entire subject area fascinates me because of how uncomfortable it is um you know we are bound by our evolutionary precepts as you called them to just and and the final thing as well is like the fundamental choice that you have left as a woman is to as most women on average if this hypergamous nature ends up continuing and if the uh how would you say the over success of women continues to accelerate uh is you have two choices as far as i can see one of them is to move through life and be single and the other one is to settle with a mate that you are fundamentally unattracted to neither of those seem like particularly good situations 
the only advantage that women have over men in this, you know, average value women and average value men, the only advantage that the women have is the fact that they can settle and the men don't even have that opportunity. It's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but the worst part about it is that is not that it's, it's a reality and it, it, it will most likely move to being more palatable as time goes on. At least that's my contention. What do you mean? It's the fact, well, it, it's in the sense that it, the, the worst part about it is that we don't know about it. That's the worst part about it is that it's, it's, it's suing the shark in the waters, right? It's, it's jaws. And it's that it, this is a creeping disaster that is, is, is on the frontier that no one is particularly informed about. And the whole point of this article was to, or these set of articles was to ring an alarm bell to say that this is definitely an issue that we need to be taking a very close look at, because it's not just that it's an issue that can be, that is, that damages an economy, for example, it might damage an economy, but it's, it's an issue that damages a society and long-term civilization. Yeah. Civilization. Yes. Civilization ending. One potential remedy. So I know that we can't reprogram our sexual desires. I know that hypergamy is going to stick about. I know that it's going to be so unpalatable as to make it a moot point to suggest that women should either be held back or should choose to hold themselves back from achievement because it's negatively correlated with mate success. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that you could do, a remedy that you could find that would keep everybody fine, would be to reinvigorate uh, a goal of nuclear family and of uh, child rearing and of sort of more traditional like yes. conservative values yes. because that means that nobody loses out but everybody now places the value of having a family so high that both men and women begin to work together collaboratively you're not referring to enforced monogamy by any chance are you i'm not referring to enforced monogamy because jordan <laughs> jordan nearly got cancelled for that and i'm not going to go that's a cancelable offense my friend correct yes um, but no I, to take your point seriously you you are you are entirely correct is that having conversations with people about this particular topic about what is the solution that is the the solution that is often presented a reinvigoration of marriage and maybe we don't use the term enforced monogamy but taking marriage seriously Instead of that, you would be able to say, not enticed monogamy, but celebrated monogamy, you know, mm -hmm. because people desire what they think other people desire. And yes. the best enforcement mechanism is admiration and desire and social uh, renown. You know, if it's now the cool thing to have a family, to have a secure life, to, you know, the two dogs, two kids, white picket fence shit, then... You don't need to mandate shit. People are just going to mm -hmm. do it because they want to to do it because other people want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mimetic. Exactly yes. that. I mean, if 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 that is what is desired by most people or perceived to be desired by most people, it's likely the case that everyone else is probably going to want it. I mean, this is mimetic desire one hundred and one, right? This is Rene Girard in a nutshell. And but that has to do with mores, cultural mores, and and um, perceptions and beliefs within society. What it is that we we prioritize. And it seems at this point in time that we don't necessarily prioritize having a, a stable and healthy relationship, having a stable and healthy marriage, raising children, and having to deal with the trials and tribulations that come with being a part of a family and being a part of, of, uh, of a healthy marriage. I mean, look, I'll talk to, to friends about this and um, you know, they'll say to me, you know, I, I don't want to stay up, you know, change diapers or wash dishes or do this and that and you know, take, take the necessary blows that are required to actually maintain a healthy relationship. And well, those are the things that you have to do 
if you want to maintain a healthy relationship. It requires a bit of pain, but ultimately you know that the pain or results in some form of, of reward or gratification, that being a healthy and happy family, and to an extent a healthy and happy society, potentially. We've thrown so much shit out of the window that we shouldn't have done, man. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Not, not just in terms of, of marriage, but probably in terms of religiosity as well. Always. I would say. Yeah. Fucking babies and bathwaters, right? Oh, dude, the bath's gone. Like the, yeah. the everything's gone out of the window. And uh this is why this is why I find it I find it so difficult now the the liberal impulses and the progressive impulses that I have in me, mm-hmm. I find them getting dampened down by increasing wisdom that I find in the past. Um and that's a what do you say, like I don't know, an internal struggle that I'm dealing with at the moment where I'm just so tentative about whatever the next piece of progression is because i'm like well what if we what if we throw away yet another thing that we desperately needed but we didn't know about yes well the the notion about progressivism i find interesting and we don't necessarily have to have a discussion about politics is that where are we progressive to just because you're progressing doesn't mean you're progressing in the right direction you could be regressing in fact if you're throwing out um, ideas and concepts and institutions that are are long held and vitally important to the society or to survival of families and societies, you're probably going in the wrong direction. Fuck, man. I don't know. I don't know. It's a some sort of cultural revolution like that. I think would be a a pretty cool thing. We were talking before we got started about the fact that you have a red pill for men mm-hmm. that only takes you up to the point at which you fuck a girl and then it goes yes. away. And you have, uh, I think it's like the pink pill or women's dating, uh, like subreddits and and, and stuff, um, that is basically the same thing for women. But there's no equivalent learning using the understandings of evolutionary psychology to encourage an effective and foster a successful marriage and then family life moving forward. Like, it's just, it's a huge, huge problem swimming underneath the water that most people don't know about that the culture is actively working to pull us away from. Yes. And now it's being reinforced. It's feeding the most base elements of our, uh, it's limbically hijacking us in the, in the worst way possible and taking us further and further away from a destination, which is not only good for individual flourishing, but also good for civilizational flourishing as well. Mm-hmm. Completely correct. And maybe the reason why that is, is that it doesn't sell. It's not sexy enough. It's not mimetically pleasing to want a family per se and to, to uh, you know, the 2.5 kids or whatever it is in a white picket fence. It's just not something that is, that is encouraged to, for people to want. They'd, they'd much rather, you know, engage in hookup culture, you know, do what you like, right? But understand that there are consequences to actions. I think that that's probably the, the fundamental lesson here is that actions have consequences and you're going to you're gonna have to bear those consequences. Well, the single biggest predictor for extramarital sex is premarital sex. Premarital sex, correct. Correct. And one of the biggest uh, points of, of um, or factors that, that lead to divorce is exactly that, is the amount of, of, um, of sexual partners you had prior to marriage. That and economics. I've got some friends who are absolutely fucked. I've got some friends who are not going to be able to hold down. <laughs> <laughs> just have a conversation with them. Hold down a marriage at all. Dude, stop it. Stop it. I know, I know that you're not thinking about this. You're 25 and full of testosterone and just sleeping with anything that moves but i promise right. you in in 25 years time when you're itching gripping onto the bed sheets in the middle of the night because you're so torn uh you're gonna you're gonna thank me 
Now, testosterone is a hell of a thing because, you know, as a criminologist, we it's fascinating when we look at the rates of, of uh, crime commission between between the ages of 15 and 25 is that's when most guys will commit the vast majority of crime. And then it sort of tapers off beyond the age of 25. And it's because of testosterone, right? Your testosterone typically decreases at the age of 26. Why is it the case that people who are on TRT, which is supra physiological levels of testosterone, aren't committing tons of crime then? Or are they? I don't know. I don't know that if that's uh, that's a great question for a criminologist to answer. I think the reason why that is is that men that typically take TRT are probably in their 40s, maybe their late 30s, and they already have a career and a family. And so that is one of the main uh, or several main factors that would prevent you from engaging in crime is having a, a stable family and um, a, a stable livelihood. And so you don't want to to destroy any of that by engaging in crime. So what we don't want is a big bunch of roving bands of incels who are all on TRT in their 40s, <laughs> jacked out of their minds with huge jacked forearms. Minds, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely that. I mean, it, it, I, I do worry about that, though, particularly the, the, the rise in inceldom and the effect it's going to have on crime. Because we could probably talk about crime statistics around this and the sort of things we're seeing uh, at the fringes in terms of, of incels engaging in crime. and all the indicators would, would, would tell me that there is going to be a looming crisis with regard to this. It may not be as serious as, as um, let's say, you know, rampant drug dealing, for example, but it is going to be an increasing problem moving forward. Do you think that incels should be considered a terrorist group? Ooh, that's a good question. I, uh, I don't want to wade into that one because <laughs> that's all. I, that's a, well, I will give you an answer. It's not that I'm, I'm afraid of providing an answer. It's there has to be an ideological opponent, uh, component that is attached to whether or not a group is, is labeled as an incel or, or, excuse me, as a terrorist. And uh, is it an ideology? Maybe. Maybe. I, I have to, I'll have to give more thought to that. I don't quite know the answer to the question. It's a good question. Uh, I had great question. Nama Cates, who does the, I think it's the incel podcast or the Black Pill podcast. And um, it was briefly after that guy in Plymouth or Portsmouth that yes. um, went on a, a shooting rampage and he was associated with some incel black pill forums and mm -hmm. they started calling it a, a terrorist attack. And yes. It may have a backfiring effect, actually, thinking about it now, because this you have to imagine that this dem demographic of people is already downtrodden to begin with and further labeling them as terrorists may actually metastasize uh, further criminal activity. It this may actually push them to do so. It's like a... This is Labeling the theory thing, man. This is the thing that the press and the media and government needs to understand yeah. that it is not a. It's no longer the case that the media are just a broadcast platform. They mm -hmm. are. It's a two way street whereby they actually influence the behavior of people on the ground. So I had yes. uh, Andrew Gold on the show, and he was partway through a documentary series about non-offending pedophiles in Germany. So I think that, mm -hmm. they, yeah, they call, they call themselves pedophiles and they call the group that um, act on their impulses pedo-criminals. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's the bifurcation. I think we've seen a uh, minor attracted person now map as the uh, academically, very strange, academically justified or, or, or uh, labeled term. So, he was talking to them and he said that there's three main risks that these pedophiles, not the criminals, uh, that they suffer with. Uh, one of them is being intoxicated. The second one is proximity to children. And the third is ostracization by society. Mm -hmm. And 
he says it become it's like a reverse self-fulfilling prophecy if you yes. want to push me away so much and you say that there is no place for me in this society i'm reprehensible and i'm disgusting and i'm terrible and i've not got any future at all why should i play your game why should i play by your rules mm-hmm. why should i why shouldn't i go and shoot up a school if i'm an incel that doesn't feel like he's got any culture uh, any future mm-hmm. why shouldn't i do that um yes absolutely correct this is a massive issue and Look, it, it, for me, when it comes to public policy, we don't really think clearly about the negative externalities of, the pol- of these policies. When it comes to actually putting forth good policy, one has to think clearly about what the consequences are, the benefits and the consequences. And the, the economist Thomas Sowell, Thomas Sowell said that public policy is not you implement something and it's immediately fixed. It's actually a trade-off. You're giving up something to get something else. And so whenever a policy is implemented, you have to think very critically about the effects, not only in the short term, but in the long term. Think not just about A, C, and B, but that, but the rest of the letters in the alphabet when it comes to probable outcomes. Fuck, man. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. This, this for all that it's post-apocalyptic and makes me terrified to my back teeth about what's going to happen in future it's endlessly fascinating i really appreciate the work that you do and for guiding me through this uh, this little back and forth today what have you got coming up have you got any ideas about areas that you're interested in for writing next great question i i'm of two minds on it because i'm a, i am interested in returning to woke capitalism and looking at hollywood and whether or not woke messaging in films actually reduces the amount of viewership and the revenue that is earned by movies. I think that'd be interesting to look at, but <clears throat> I'm slowly moving away from from writing, from uh, writing as sort of a public intellectual. And I'm sort of going in the, in the direction of, of finance and industry, of uh, doing my own thing on the side. Because look, I don't, I don't want fame. I don't want to be, to be seen. I don't tweet at all. And I will, as you pointed out at the, the outset of this, I will publish a paper every two, three, four months. And granted, it takes a lot of work to actually write these fucking papers. Like, good God, it takes months to actually research them. It's like an academic paper. But it's it's um, it's slowly becoming a, a time constraint and a, a, stra- a constraint to my cognitive capital. Is that I could be doing things which are more productive and beneficial to people as opposed to simply writing papers. Well, from one reader that, has at least found a little bit of joy in the stuff that you've put out man i think you know whether whether this is close to the the twilight of your writing career or not i think you've you've put some awesome stuff out there and it's really really interested me so yeah i hope you've got a few more left in the tank and then we've got an excuse to do this again i really appreciate it chris and thank you for having me on the podcast it was a fantastic conversation i should actually thank rob henderson that son of a bitch has bought me a cigar and it's probably waiting for me back in the house Go smoke it, but I'm gonna thank him because he's actually uh, he. I was actually hesitant because I don't really do podcasts, but he said Chris is a great guy. You gotta talk to him. I trust him. He's one of the dude bros, and I uh, I'm a bit of a dude bro myself to be honest. So I guess we uh, we uh, we got on well. I've got that Asian seal of approval, man. That's all I'm here for. That half Asian uh, age of their, um, uh, is approval is the joke that we we make. Half Asian Rob Henderson is half Asian. Half Asian, yes, half Asian Rob. I love it, dude. Catch you next time. (laughs) Wonderful, buddy. Take care. All best.